0: All right, once again, good morning. (laughs) Glad to have you here with us. Uh, We're going to be in John chapter 18. If you'd like to follow along your Bibles, phones, iPads, however you choose to follow, feel free to be turning there. So last week, uh, as a body, we had the chance to look at um, Jesus' sweet and, and tender prayer to the Father, that high priestly prayer. Um, and it's appropriate to kind of ask the question, you know, in the hills of such a, an incredible high point in Scripture, this revealing of, of the, the Son's heart for the Father and his desire for his people to be united and loved together, we should kind of be asking the question, what will follow, right? Jesus has implored for, for peace and unity among his people that, that mirrors and reflects the, the eternal peace and unity between the Father and the Son, And he's trusted himself fully to God's power. And so we might be surprised that immediately following such a wonderful prayer, we have the betrayal of Jesus at the hands of one of his followers, no less. And on the one hand, we might want to look at that and say, wow, it didn't take long for that prayer request to fail. Uh, Might be a new record. But on the other, it couldn't be more appropriate that as the Savior who teaches about self-sacrificing love and prays for self-sacrificing love, then demonstrates for us, even in in the way in which he's betrayed, this ultimate self-sacrificing love, that that nothing can overcome God's plans for him and for his people through him. Uh, And so that's where we are this morning. I'm echoing now. Uh, That's where we are this morning as we come to John chapter 18. I'd like to read that passage for us as we begin in it together. Verses one through fourteen, so we have it kind of it's an entirety, um, and then I'm going to invite you to join me in, in going to the throne of grace and in praying that God would bless our time together in that word. And so let me read that for us as we get started this morning. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden in which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost no one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right, he- right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup? that the Father has given me. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, as we continue our worship by turning attention to the reading and preaching of your word, we ask that just as you have been with us in our singing and our confessions of sin and our prayers, that you would continue to be with us, that you would be faithful to move by your Spirit, that we might enter into a dark time in history, yet the time in which the light of the world was moving to save your people. Father, would you lay clearly before us the many ways in which we so often find ourselves operating like the officers and the Pharisees and even Peter in this passage, trusting in the world's plans, trusting in ourselves, and as you expose those things, would you draw us unto Jesus, unto a Savior who is nothing less than God of God, very light of light, as we've confessed this morning. And whose name matters most in the moment where it seems he's been given over. Father, would you remind us that no one took his life from him and yet he laid it down willingly, obediently, faithfully. That we might know you and love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to share share something this morning that uh, if any of my students are here, they're probably tired of me mentioning, but I love the movie Sandlot. Um, I think it's just a great movie, and I I feel compelled as a campus minister with my students to, you know, they they watch a lot of digital media, Netflix is really popular, Netflix binges, and so I feel like I'm always kind of, like, needing to recommend good movies to them. (laughs) Like, this is something you should have seen. Um, Sandlot's one of those movies, there's so many things to love about it, these Baseball fanatics that, that lose Small's dad's stepdad's dads uh, Babe Ruth autographed baseball over the fence. And now they have to deal with the beast. And one of the things that's awesome about that movie is just the series of events, the, the, the many, many plans that unfold to get the ball back, right? Uh, it starts off with simple, like we'll attach a glove to a broom or we'll, we'll stick a stick over. Then they lower their friend from a tree into the, into the beast layer, which seems kind of strange if they really believe this is a man-eating animal. Uh, they, they attach a bunch of vacuums together and try and suck the ball up. They, they eventually build a, a cart with a catapult on it. And all of these things fail, and it leads to that, that pivotal moment, right? Where Benny gets out the PF flyers, guaranteed to make him run faster and jump higher because of some strange vision he has from Babe Ruth. Um, a little questionable there. But he jumps over the fence, he gets the ball, and that, that saves the day, Right? No, like even that plan unfolds, I guess somewhat successfully. He gets the ball in his hand. doesn't really save them, right? At the end of the chase, the fence falls over onto the beast, and they decide, we need to save this animal. And all they have in their hand is this chewed-up, disgusting ball that has no chance of saving Small's life, right? He's done. And because they've caused so much chaos and destruction, they're just going to have to tell Mr. Myrtle what's happened. But Darth Vader saves the day. James Earl Jones act of compassion, right, uh, grace, not because of anything that they've done, only because their plans, without knowing it, have kind of led them to exhaustion, where the only thing they can do is go to him, ends up being the one that saves the day. And as we come to this passage, I think one of the things we have to see is the number of plans that are unfolding in it, that everyone, there's, there's lots of people that are given to us in this short passage, and all of them have a plan, all of them have a scheme this is how we're going to win. This is how we're going to fix the world. This is how we're going to protect ourselves. This is how we're going to secure things politically. That's, this is how we're going to protect our religious or our moral power. Like, everyone has an angle. And Jesus, John is intent on making sure we know and see, is very aware of those plans. He, he doesn't walk into this ignorant. Instead, with full knowledge of what's unfolding, he intentionally springs the trap. Right? In, in, in the moment of that, that trap being sprung he even makes this startling declaration that, that floors the people around them that shows without a doubt that he's actually the one in control and though everyone thinks they have the plan that's going to fix everything his plan actually is being served by all of their plans he's, he's so in control and in power that it's not just that he overcomes their plans but their plans become part of his plan And I think that should matter to us. That because Jesus is in control in the very moment of his betrayal, it's this this powerful invitation to all of us to quit trusting in the world's plans. To quit trusting in the wisdom of the world. When we have a Savior who declares, I am. In the midst of his betrayal, as the world's darkest, most evil scheme unfolds, it's not enough to stop him. More simply put, Jesus' plan is better than our plan. And that should make all the difference. Why would we trust the power of swords and suits when Jesus turns the world's most evil scheme into a cog in his plan for salvation? And I think that's a question we need to wrestle with because one of the more startling aspects of this passage It's by the end of it, everyone continues in that plan that they had, don't they? Jesus does some amazing things. It's kind of startling the way Jesus handles what unfolds. And yet at the end of the passage, everyone continues in their plan. And so it would be easy just to view this as another detail trying to get to the cross. Okay, historical detail doesn't matter very much. And yet, if, if, if that's true, if, if so many people even around you in the midst of this event can continue trusting in their plans rather than God's plan for them in Jesus, I think it's, it's important that we begin by confessing and repenting of our own scheming. Right? The, the first point to be made as we look at the passage together, if we're going to trust in, in God's plan for us in Jesus, is that swords and suits come to futility. Um, as I've already said, as we look at the passage together, everybody's scheming, everybody has an angle Let's take a moment to appreciate that. Judas has chosen some degree of wealth, but probably more importantly, power, protection. Uh, He feels like things aren't going well, and now is the time to sell. Now is the time to get out. Uh, The religious leaders, right? Let's go get Jesus in the dark. Caiaphas was right. It'd be better if we just had this one person die instead of more and more people kind of continuing to follow him. Uh, I I think it's interesting, and, and we should notice that it's not just a ragtag band of people. We're told that it's it's soldiers and officers from the temple, the chief priests, and the Pharisees. Uh, there's clearly already kind of a political action being taken. There had have been some communication between the Jewish leaders and, and, and the leaders of uh, the Roman soldiers. That, that, that hey, we need this to happen, right? And so it's it's this passage very much paints for us a picture of a web of plans, right? There's, there's political power that's moving against Jesus. There's religious power that's moving against Jesus. There's personal interest moving against Jesus. Everyone is, is moving, carrying out this plan to protect themselves. Uh, once again, entering into the world of digital media. Uh, I was told recently by, by one of my students that the, the new series of House of Cards was out on Netflix, which he had already watched all of. Um, and so that was impressive in its own right. But it's it's this this show that's that's rather popular right now that kind of paints the worst picture of politics right like so if if you're anti politics you would probably love this show but it's just everyone has an angle everyone's dirty and no one's more dirty than than frank cunderwood the the character who's spinning all of these webs and is constantly backstabbing he's constantly using any means possible to secure power um, and, and maybe it's easy as we look back in in time and history and We've heard the story so many times to kind of just glance over um, the underhandedness of what's happening. The corruption that's taking place. The enemies who are becoming bedfellows in order to take care of Jesus. Uh, But it's nothing less than if Frank Underwood and his political machine was was moving to take Jesus. And and Jesus looking at, at someone as dirty and corrupt as Frank Underwood and saying... Not only is your plan not going to stop me, but I'm, I'm actually going to use your plan. Uh, that, that corrupt, seedy, underhanded plan. It's not just that I'm, I'm not going to let it stop me, but it, I'm actually going to use that. There's one other plan that I think we can't miss in this passage as we seek to confess our scheming. And that's that of, of Peter. Peter. Right, and I, I think once again, if you if you've been in the church very much, Peter's kind of fun to rag on. Like there's the Gospels, Peter, who we always just kind of look at and say, "Oh, Peter, you silly person, why are you doing that?" And then you know after Jesus leaves, like, "Wow, Peter, great leader." Um, and so this is this is pre-Jesus leaving Peter. So we're just kind of like, "Oh, there goes Peter again, like doing Peter things," but he really has a heroic plan, right? Like, for a moment, let's not assume the worst of Peter immediately. And let's just appreciate the fact that that Peter's trying to go Jason Bourne for Jesus, right? Like, I'm standing next to the Messiah, and evil, corrupt people have come to capture him. And I have a sword. Like, it's an impossible situation, right? It's a suicide mission. Maybe I'll be able to knock some people back, and before they get me pinned down and put a sword through me, Jesus will be able to escape. It's actually... Sounds like a really noble, maybe even self-sacrificing plan. Right? But it's the only plan in the passage that Jesus just outright rejects. No, Peter, this isn't how it's going to happen. Right? But I think it's so important we don't miss Peter's plan. Because it would be easy to look at this and say, yeah, the world. The world. They're, they're a bunch of schemers. Those people out there. They're the ones that, that rely on corruption, wealth. And yet it's so tempting, isn't it, for God's people as well to look at swords and suits and say, this is how it has to be done. Right? We're losing the battle. Look at what's happening in our culture. We need a sword. And we need to start swinging. And before we we look at how Jesus, any more into how Jesus uses those plans for his own end... I think we have to stop and ask the question as we see Jesus walking into this trap, where are we prone to trust in the world's plan? Where are we prone to to look and say, the only way this is going to happen in my life, the only way I'm going to get where maybe God wants me to be or where I think I need to be in order to to have the good life, to experience that success, like, I I need this sword, I need this power, I need this, this suit. Um... Right? I think for a lot of us, it might be parenting. Where do I believe I, I have to be in control or else my child will not turn out to be the child that, that I want to have? Do we look at ourselves and say, I must be my child's own savior, either through perfect education or friends or the, the, the perfect balance schedule, right? Napping at the right time, eating at the right time. What about with careers, Right? You better find one you love. It better be the perfect job. Sort of job you, you wake up and you love to go to. Uh, we're tempted to do the same thing, I think, with spouses. This is you know, Especially with students who don't have one yet. <laughs> it's got to be that one true love. It's got to be the hyper-compatible spouse. For those of you who are married, like, hyper-compatible? Maybe you're, like, I love my wife. And I think we, we, we fit each other really well. But hyper-compatible? Right. There's, there's so many things that the world looks at us and says, this is how you secure power. This is how you secure happiness. This is the logical, reasonable way to go about this. Um, I was struck by this especially. Uh, there's, there's some of us who gather in the church and, and do, some, do a book study together. And we just started a new book on, on friendship uh, by, by Wesley Hill. Uh, and in that, that book, his, his kind of first argument is that our culture is just Opposed to friendship in so many different ways. There's these myths, or if we're looking at this passage together, we might say plans or schemes. There's, there's myths of freedom. We better not be too committed to anyone else in our lives, or else we won't have the freedom we need to find fulfillment. There's a myth of family and marriage, that, that family and marriage is so important that we, we can't have time for friendships, or we can only pursue friendships after all that's secured. And I think friendships is a, is a particularly important for us to ask the question of this morning, because what has Jesus just prayed for, right? He's just prayed that we would love one another in a way that that mirrors his self-sacrificing love for us. And that's the sort of love the world would look at and say, no, that's, you're giving way too much up. If if you give other people that sort of power over you, if you live for for others, how are you going to get where you need to get in your career? How are you going to have the amount of time you need to give to your family, right? There's no way someone can love the way Jesus loves. And that's a relevant question to look at the church, right? Do we do the same thing with the church? Jump ship when things get bad. Fire the guns when there's something we don't like. There's so many ways in which we, we look to power the same way the world does. The same, the same way someone else outside of the church would say, this is how you get change done. And I think in order for us to embrace the beauty of a Savior who gives himself over to the schemes of the world, we have to be able to confess our tendency, our disposition to trust the power of man, to trust the wisdom of the world, To look for fulfillment and meaning and purpose in other places and to repent of that. As we've already done to some extent this morning as we did our confession of sin together. The many ways in which we look to ourselves to be our savior. We cannot self-sacrificially love others unless we renounce continually the self-serving powers and schemes of the world. Because they're utterly opposed to the plan of God for us in Jesus. And we can do that because of the good news that Jesus can and does use the scheming against his kingdom to save his kingdom, right? We've kind of been resisting jumping to that point. But it's so important to see just how central and integral this is to Jesus' plan, right? We're we're told immediately in verses 1 to 2 that Jesus goes to this place um, uh, across the Kidron Valley where he was known to go. Jesus knows that Judas knows this is where he often went with his disciples. And it's interesting, it's at night, there, there's, there's trees and, and probably lots of rocks and places around to hide. It would have been easy for him to escape, but instead in verse 4, we're told that he, he came forward, presumably out of the shadows, right? Like, he's not trying to hide. And most importantly, in verse 4, he has full knowledge of what they want to do to him. Our Savior's not one who's who's wondering, how is it that God wants me to go about this? But he knows precisely what he's doing and where he's going, such that we could look at the, the statement in verse 14 that Caius thinks he knows. Jesus knows all the better what that actually means, right? What his death is going to mean for God's people. And so, once again, we have a picture of John 17 happening. Jesus has prayed that we would know God's love. Now he's demonstrating God's love for us. and He's giving himself over. In John 13, where Jesus told his disciples that greater love knows no one than this, that one will lay down his life for his friends. And in front of his friends, as they cower in fear, as they wonder what's happening, Jesus shows that to them yet again. He lets the trap be sprung. And I think it's important, it's really important that we see the difference between Jesus not letting the schemes of the world stop him, and Jesus actually using the schemes of the world to accomplish his purposes, because one implies much greater control and power than the other, right? Do um, something else that, that my students are probably tired of hearing, and you will soon be too. Uh, but I love Steph Curry. Um, it's, it's an idolatry that I have to confess regularly but if you don't know who Steph Curry is, he's he's currently putting together perhaps the best season of basketball in the history of basketball. I'm not biased at all. Others are saying that though. Um, One of the things I love about Steph uh, that, that I just think still isn't appreciated enough even though people are starting to talk about it, is he's a superstar. He can make half court shots at a higher percentage than most people make normal three pointers and two pointers for that matter. He's this incredible player in all these different ways. But one of the things that has been the key in his team being so good is that he allows himself to be trapped. He's probably the only player in history that consistently, consistently, at 35, 40 feet from the basket, just draws a double team. And one of the things he did in the playoffs last year, and he's doing this year as his team seeks to break Michael Jordan's Bulls single season wins record is he's so good at drawing the double team way out, allowing himself to get trapped, holding on to the ball, and then just making the unspectacular pass out of the double team that he rarely gets an assist for, that rarely is going to make some sort of highlight, that most of the time when he does it, by the time he makes that pass, his team then has a four on three in the half court. There's two guys 40 feet from the basket guarding him, and his other players, who are also world-class players, now have the chance to score. And it's devastating, and it's not just that. Oops, they've trapped me. I guess I can't score now. It's part of their plan, right? The other team is looking at the, at Steph's numbers and saying, "We ha- we have to get the ball out of this guy's hands. Like we we've got to trap him. Like we've got to pressure him." <laughs> and they're just inviting them to do that, and it's part of their plan. It's part of what makes them so hard to stop, right? And and Jesus is inviting the trap, right? He's not just saying, oh, no, they've trapped me. I guess I'll have to go about this another way Have to come up with another plan here. No, he allows himself to be trapped so that we could be free. And if that's true in the darkest moment in history, if that's true in this seedy story of, of underhanded corruption and betrayal at the hands of his friend, no less, how much more so should this be true in our life, right? How much more so should we be able to look at the challenges and obstacles and the things we face and the things we look at and say, why is this happening? How can God allow this? And say, not just, yes, this isn't going to stop God from pursuing his plan for me, but this can actually be part of God's plan for me. Right? He can use this seemingly tragic story To shape me and make me look more like Jesus. And that doesn't doesn't solve all the questions. I mean, the fact that Jesus can use this story of corruption doesn't solve all of our questions about the cross, does it? Like there's there's a mystery here about how God can use these things so precisely and powerfully that that we just can't fully understand as finite beings. that, That we can only understand what is revealed to us about this. And yet, imagine the freedom we could have to allow others to maybe perhaps take advantage of us in ways in which the world would look at and say, why would you let someone have that upper hand on you? The ways in which we could then maybe look at our lives and say, this this sacrifice of our comfort or wages or career path or education could actually be a way to love and serve someone. It allows us to be free from the schemes and the plans of the world that say, this is how you must live. And once again, going back to the idea of friendship and, and love for one another, because I think it's so relevant given what Jesus has just prayed for, right? The ability to, to say, I can give my times to others in ways that just doesn't make sense, right? In a culture that's just bent on being the busiest possible, right? Who's working the hardest? Let me tell you how hard I'm working so you know that I'm working really, really hard. We have the freedom in Jesus to say, I can make this sacrifice, I can trust that, and I know, I think where this is so hard for us to believe, right? Like you've had a long and busy week, and you've got that sacred family time, right? And my family won't survive unless that family time stays sacred. What if, because God is in control, even in the midst of his betrayal, we could then look at that family time and say, I can invite someone else into that time. Our family could show hospitality to a single person in the church, who's longing for community and trust that Jesus is faithful to our family even though, right, it, we've, we've given up some sacred family time. Like, and, and I recognize how hard that is with, with, with little kids, right? Because they go to bed early and you're like, all right, we've got an hour here. Can we invite someone into that time? We have that freedom because Jesus is in control. And the issue that's at the heart of all of this is who Jesus is. Who Jesus is. It's not just that he can use the plans of the world, but that the most important thing we see is, we ask that question, can we trust God's plan rather than the plans of the world? Is who is Jesus? His name is at the heart of this passage, isn't it? That in, in the moment of his betrayal, he, he utters this, this statement that, that perhaps maybe the way it's translated lends to it just its unspectacularness. I am he. Um, if, if we were going through a series in, in the book of John, by the time we got to this passage, hopefully our antennas would be up and we'd say, whoa, there's another I am statement. <laughs> because in the gospel of John, over and over again, John uses these I am statements by Jesus to structure his whole book, right? Who is Jesus is one of the central questions of the book of John. And one of the most powerful and difficult passages for those present in Jesus' day comes in John chapter 8 when Jesus is discussing uh, with the religious leaders timelines and they're like, oh, wait a second You weren't. Abraham's way older than you and Jesus says, before Abraham was I am and they pick up stones because they know what he means Right? He's using that, that word, that, that name that God gave to his people of himself, I am. The, the truly self-dependent, existent, eternal one. The creator God, the covenant faithful God, I am. And John tells us that Jesus goes back to that same phrase in the very moment that he gives himself over. In the very moment that the world would say, you've been caught Look at your weakness. The system and the powers that be have won. Jesus says, I am. And it knocks them down. It floors them. It's this this powerful moment where he asserts to them and to us, I'm in control. And the reason I'm in control is because of who I am. And as we look at this passage and say, Jesus is in control. There's nothing of the plans or schemes of this world that can overcome God's plan The thing that should move us most is Jesus' identity. That he is the Lord, right? Even in our call to worship this morning, we were reminded that the world trusts in in chariots and horses, but, but what does the psalmist encourage us to say? That we trust in the name of the Lord. That who the Lord is stands against all of the schemes and powers of the world. That it comes back to his identity. If you're this is something we're doing a lot right now, teaching kids to ride a bike. Uh, we've got a pedalless balance bike that has been a big hit with Walker. We're trying to make that jump to pedals. Um, and there's so many things I can look at my son and say, right? Like, I know how to ride a bike. Look, I can ride a bike. Look, I'm strong enough to hold you. You're, you're pretty light. Uh, I- I've got you. It's okay. Like, you don't have that far to fall, right? He's not that interested in the physics lesson there, <laughs> Like, you're going to be fine. There's this helmet. It will crush if something bad happens. Like, one of the main things you're doing over and over again is you're looking at that child and saying, like, remember who I am. I'm your daddy. Right? Like, I could explain to you all the physics of what we're trying to do. I could say all these things that I can do. But more than anything, remember who I am to you. Do you think I'm going to let you do something? Even if, even if it involves failure, right? Learning to ride a bike, a lot of failure. You're going to have some skinned knees, most likely. You should have put knee pads on him. You know, he's, he's small. That's tough. Uh, right? Remember who I am. I'm your daddy. And who I am should make all the difference. It should be the central, most important thing. And yet, so often, who Jesus is, is, is what we're so quick to forget. It's, this is one of the reasons why I'm so bothered and uncomfortable at that comment that Cameron so, so often makes. And you're like, which one? Uh, <laughs> when, when, he, when he talks about just how unaware we are of the amount of damage we're doing, a year or two in the future from now, by not growing in our worship of the Lord and in our, in our knowledge of Him, Uncomfortable, not because it's wrong. Uncomfortable because it's true, right? If, if I'm not growing in a sense of who Jesus is and what his name means and how it should matter to me, then of course when the dark moments come, like the betrayal in the garden, my tendency is going to be, be to say, this can't be, right? This will not work. Because it's so easy for my eyes to wander to other things that I think matter, right? How might Jesus' divinity, his name, change your thoughts, your feelings, your actions about the injustices and the trials you face in your life? Once again, it's not to say that it solves all the problems, the questions you might have, the suffering in the moment. But I am is the creator and sustainer Of the world and even in the moments where it seems like he's we're most prone to fail, or the plan is failing, or the the enemy is winning, is when he asserts, I am. Right, when the world says you should be freaking out right now, Jesus says, I am. Listen, as as we get back, as we come to the end of the passage, let's just go back to the simple truth. Everybody has a plan. All of us have a multitude of plans. I love what Ben Stiller says in A Long Game Polly to Jennifer Anderson's character, who's this free spirit. You're on, yes, you do have a plan. You're on the non-plan plan, right? You might be on the non-plan plan. You might be like, if I just avoid traditional planning in whatever sense that traditional planning would be, then I will be fulfilled and happy. I'll be free. And that, that, even that is a plan, right? What are, you, what are you looking at in your life and saying, this is what's going to bring me fulfillment? are the so- suits and the swords or the 10-step books, anything and everything that we're so prone to look at instead of the God of the universe, who can even use this dark story of betrayal to accomplish salvation. I'm going to repeat something, uh, but let Calvin do it because he'll do it better that we kind of mentioned at the beginning of the passage. He says, speaking of everyone else in this story, But those men, after having had an open display of the divine power of Christ, proceed as fearlessly as if they had not perceived him in him, even the shadow of a man. Nay, Judas himself remains unmoved. And just like we said at the beginning, maybe the most startling thing is that Jesus could reveal who he is to the point that people fall down on the ground and no one changes. How stubborn and hard our hearts can be, even when we're confronted with God's power, who Jesus is. What would our church look like if we really believed this were true? And we we started taking risks in the way that we served people, in the way that we functioned in our community. Among our neighbors and our schools and our workplaces, if we actually believe that even in the moments, perhaps especially in the moments where it seems the world is working against us, God is in control, and we serve a Savior whose self-sacrificing plan can't be defeated, and who invites us to join him in that self-sacrifice. As, as we stand um, and prepare to sing our last song. Even in our singing this this song together, would we view it as an opportunity to confess together, to remind one another that his plan truly is better? That even as we go to this dark hour in history, we're reminded that nothing can overcome, and even more than that, everything can be used by God and his plan for us, even as we struggle to understand that. Let's stand and, and sing our final song together. As we confess that reality.